Welcome to Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast, episode number nine, Green, recorded Sunday, December 10, 2006. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Show notes for this episode and a lot of other fun stuff can be found at www.uncontrolledairspace.com. Bill, Bill, Bill. It's so so easy, it's deceptive. It it really Uh, is. To me, using the word green in these kinds of contexts usually means that it's environmentally friendly. It's a product that is... (laughs) Okay. Okay, boys. Okay. All right. Well, on that note, everyone... Now we're definitely uh, in too much information. That's right. On that note, I think we're going to begin the podcast for real. Uh, Good morning, everyone. This is the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson. With us again this morning, Jeb Burnside, who is a freelance aviation journalist and currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine and also as a contributing editor to Avweb Biz. Morning, Jeb. Good morning, folks. Good morning, and Dave Higdon is also with us, aviation photographer, senior editor of Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Hi, Dave. Good morning, everybody. Happy holidays. So just before we started recording, we were chatting about life, the universe, and everything. It's probably best that we didn't share all that with you folks, but... Uh, but uh, we were talking about the weather like we usually do. Weather seems to... So, Dave, the snow is kind of better up in your ne- neck of the woods, huh? Pretty much all gone, uh, you know, just a, a, a fond memory of the uh, of the seven, eight inches that came blasting through here about ten days ago. And, uh, you know, now the streets are all clean and got sand all over them and ready for the next wave. And, Jeb, you're probably still suffering through these 70-degree days in December, right? Yeah. Well, we've, we've bade a long, fond farewell to our 70-degree days. Uh, we're waking up these days to um, uh, 20s. Yesterday morning, um, had a flight down to uh, the Norfolk area and uh, got up, I think it was 22 on the car thermometer as I was driving out. Uh, by the time uh, got airborne and, and got a little bit to altitude, uh, it was 39. That's still too blinking cold, though. You, uh, guys are, you guys are shattering all my illusions about what winter's like down in the southern part of the United States of America, or what well, I consider to the southern part of the United and, and, States. And, 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 uh, it, it's curious. I don't consider Virginia to be part of the south. Yeah, I, mean, I know you don't. And point uh, of years in Georgia, uh, there's a stark contrast between the two and the cultures and everything else, not to mention the climate. Uh, one of the reasons I like this area is because it has uh, a definitive uh, four seasons to it. Uh, I, I like that. Uh, Georgia seems to have, uh, um, I don't know, two and a half, three seasons. There's no real winter down there. Yeah. But, uh, and up here in Boston, up here in greater Boston, we're going to have a, a, an unseasonably warm day, although nothing like what you might get another place it's supposed to get into the 50s today which is really unusual everyone's kind of freaking out about it and uh 60 uh, or so tomorrow here but yeah so anyways those overnight are are, uh, 
definitely around freezing or frost temperatures anyway. Well, before we get rolling, once again, I want to remind everyone that uh, in addition to listening to this podcast, we hope that everyone will also visit the Uncontrolled Airspace website at uncontrolledairspace.com. There's all sorts of good stuff there. Uh, you can see the show notes from all of our shows with links to the web pages that we talk about and also other background information. You can listen to the previous episodes. You can sign up for our reminder email list. Uh, you can get instructions on how to uh, get a free subscription to the podcast through one of the podcatcher programs like iTunes or iPodder or Juice or others. Uh, and remember to tell all your friends that you do not need an iPod to listen to podcasts like this one. You can download the cast uh, to any portable audio device or just listen on your laptop or desktop computer. And finally, check back to the website often for all sorts of coming soon features like a discussion forum, a blog, and one of these days maybe even some uncontrolled airspace booty. Like everyone needs an uncontrolled airspace baseball cap, right? So visit the uh, website at uncontrolledairspace.com. One visit a week, that's all we ask. So, I don't know, should we announce the blog today? Should we should we roll that out or is that is that sort of ready for consumption? Well, since you, you know, since Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, um, well, I guess the real question would be to what extent if any can uh, uh, non-participants uh, comment or add items to the blog. Well, they can, uh, and uh, they can certainly kind of see what's on our mind. And so, I guess we we've announced it. Um, lack, it lack thereof. I mean, I, I, we'll, we'll we'll throw in the disclaimer that it is a a very casual blog. Um, it's uh, it's on our website. Uh, it's at uh, uncontrolledairspace.com/fodder. F O D D E R, uh, and we created it as a place for us to uh, kind of. Uh, store away the stories that we're looking at for possible discussion uh, in the podcast. And uh, we're more than happy to have people uh, check in on it from time to time. Um, I, I, it, and it's, it's very casual, uh, and sh someone shouldn't expect the kind of polish that you see on the, uh, on the uh, other great aviation websites out there. But you will get an idea of the kind of things that are, are on our mind, uh, and you might also see follow-up information on stories that we talked about in, in recent uh, episodes of the podcast. So uncontrolledairspace.com slash fodder, and I'll, I'll warn you right now, actually, we may change that URL at some point to be slash blog, um, although the slash fodder will continue to work for a while as well. But uh, take a look there. Um, you can leave comments there. Um, it's I, f I forget exactly how we have it configured right now. Um, whether you have, it's, we, we, we're, we're using blogger.com, their software, to manage the blog. And uh, so you may have to sign in as a blog. I don't know exactly how that's configured. Although I think you can leave an anonymous po comment there. So we urge people to leave comments somehow, some way. Check it out. Give us your feedback at uh, podcast, at, by email at podcast uh, at uncontrolledairspace.com if you don't like the way the blog is set up and maybe we'll fix it. Anyways, that's way too much on that subject. <laughs> Well, we're back. We had a little technical snafu there uh, that I think... had to have a little electronic robitussin. That's right. <laughs> and I think we've resolved the problem. I'm not sure. We'll we changed find out the oil in the electrons. We'll find out a little bit later on whether or not the, uh, the our listening audience heard the little snafu. Uh, but I think it's 50-50. But in any event, I think, I hope, knock on wood, uh, we've resolved the problem now. And so we'll, just, we'll barrel along here where we left off at. Uh, so... Uh, uh, we're done talking about the blog, and uh, and that's all the business I have here. Um, I guess we just kind of wander on into the news of the day, and I think I know what the big story is this time. 
big story is the Brazilian uh, government, uh, the uh, midair down there, and uh, uh, criminal charges against the two U.S. pilots who were involved in the midair back in uh, September. It's all pretty exciting. So, was one of you guys want to kind of give us a brief synopsis of where things are now? Well, what's the situation? Dave, I'll let you do that. Well, back on September 29th, there was a rarity among rarities, an en route cruise altitude midair collision between a Brazilian airliner operated by Gol Airlines, a Boeing 737, and an Embraer legacy jet en route from uh, the uh, Embraer factory to the United States. It was a delivery flight. Uh, the uh, crew of the Embraer legacy uh, heroically managed to save their aircraft, find a military field there in the Amazon jungle, put the aircraft down safely. I believe there were six or seven souls on board that they saved. Seven. Unfortunately, two, crew and, two crew and five packs. And five passengers. Unfortunately, that was not, it was not good news for the 154 people on the Gold air, airliner that went down in the jungle, uh, killing everybody. Uh, since then, the uh, two American pilots have been uh, kind of under house arrest, if you will. Their passports were uh, were uh, confiscated. Uh, they were put up in a hotel on Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro, which, which is not you, bad duty when you think about it. But, well, uh, I've, I've, uh, I've spent time on that suck. beach. There's there's nice hotels and there's not so nice hotels. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but just the fact that they weren't allowed to return home, exactly. While military and criminal investigations proceeded in parallel with the uh, safety investigation. Been a lot of recriminations back and forth. Uh, there's some serious questions about what air traffic control had told the uh, the aircraft, the two aircraft, to do. Uh, the long and the short of it is the legacy crew claims that they were cleared to a non-standard altitude, flight level 370, when normally they would have been at 36 or 380. Uh, the Brazilian airliner, the Gol airliner, was at 370. They intercepted. Uh, there was no collision alert. Apparently, transponders on neither aircraft were functioning well. Uh, a few days ago, uh, and this is being recorded uh, on uh, December 10th, a few days ago, a judge in Brazil ordered the uh, pilot's passports returned so that they could return home. Uh, on Friday, just before they were allowed to leave the United States, uh, leave for the United States on a chartered flight. They spent six hours in interrogation with uh, uh, police investigators and were subsequently charged in the accident and then allowed to leave on the uh, condition that they returned for trial. Uh, this is criminalization of an accident investigation and it's completely outside the bounds of normal practice. It's outside the bounds of ICAO recommendations. That's the International Civil Aviation Organization. Uh, it's outside the bounds of best practices for aviation safety. And pick an alphabet group and they are, you know, basically uh, decrying the criminal charges in this. It smacks a little bit of the uh, 747 explosion over Long Island Sound when the FBI came in uh, and usurped the NTSB investigation because, quote unquote, you just have to look at it to know that it was a terrorist attack. Right. Uh, that investigation was completely compromised and set back months by the slash FBI's years. action. Yeah, slash years. So as of right now, have the pilots returned to U.S. soil? It, they are they should be in the are, are they back on U.S. soil? Okay, they, they left Friday. Okay. Okay. Um, 
couple of couple of extra details here, and uh, I have to at the outset kind of give a, a shout out or a disclaimer. Um, I'm working on an article, a feature article for Aviation Safety's January issue on this uh, on this midair collision. Um, I guess a couple of points. One, the flight plan, the crew, the the uh, legacy crew filed um, included three different altitudes. First altitude in the flight plan was was flight level three seven zero. They then filed uh, to descend to three six zero after crossing a certain vortex or VOR uh, in Brazil along their route. The third altitude uh, they filed in their flight plan was 380 after f crossing a, an intersection along the airway. When they uh, were still on the ground, they received their clearance from ATC, Brazilian ATC, which um, included a clearance to flight level 370. Uh, no further information on altitude was in that clearance, including, uh, for example, uh, an altitude that they should expect or an altitude uh, uh, to which they were cleared other than 370 and the clearance that they received was straight through to their destination. There was no, uh, for example, here in the, unit, in the U.S., you might get an intermediate altitude clearance and then an altitude to expect after a certain amount of time or after crossing a certain fix. There was none of that in their initial on-the-ground pre-takeoff clearance from ATC. Secondly, on crossing that fix, um, at which they were level at 370, and beyond which their filed flight plan would have had them at 360, they checked in, reported their altitude, they were in radio contact with Brazilian ATC. At no point did ATC query them on their altitude, give them a descent clearance, or otherwise express any concern about the altitude at which they were flying. Um, subsequently, they flew past the, uh, the fix uh, at which they were had filed to climb the 380 uh, at 370. In other words, they remained level at 370, um, passing the first fix at which they were to descend to 360, and continued past the second fix at which they were to climb to 380, all of which was done at altitude of, of uh, 37,000 feet or flight level 370. At this point, um, a couple of things happened. One, uh, their transponder return um, went intermittent. In other words, it, it changed from a secondary transponder return with all the data to a primary return. In other words, just a, a blip on a radar screen. No altitude so, code. No, no, no altitude, no data block associated with the radar return. Um, the second thing that happened is communications became intermittent. Um, there was effectively a period of some 30 minutes or so where um, neither ATC could talk to the legacy or the legacy could talk to ATC. It is not known, and I've asked this question of, of U.S. authorities, but have not gotten a definitive response. It's not known whether the legacy crew could hear other aircraft. Uh, it's presumed that ATC could hear other aircraft, uh, but at no point did either side of the, of the conversation try to relay a request or a clearance to the other. Mm -hmm. um, at, this went on for a good 30 plus minutes 
at toward the end of which both sides began calling in the blind for the other. Uh, Brazilian ATC tried to issue a uh, a frequency change, seeing as how the legacy had flown out of one uh, sector, one air traffic control sector, into another. Um, the legacy crew um, tried to raise ATC on their previous frequency, proved unable. At one point, they heard uh, a uh, broken transmission directing a frequency change, but were not able to to comprehend or not able to understand, I should say, uh, the, the uh, all of the numbers in the frequency. It was within five minutes of that exchange that the midair occurred. And wasn't there also some, I mean, and that's all really interesting, wasn't, we're also hearing a lot of strange things about broken procedures and maybe even equipment failures in well, that's, uh, Brazilian ATC. There was this thing about where the radar system may actually have seemed to indicate that they had in fact been cleared to this new altitude when they hadn't? That's a very good point, and what we're not hearing, and let me, let me back up here. Um, back in uh, November, I think it was November 22 to be exact, uh, the NTSB released what I consider to be a remarkable and, and lengthy and detailed statement um, to the public. Uh, the, the U.S. NTSB has, has been named a party to the investigation in Brazil. Um, on November 22, uh, the NTSB released this factual statement at the request of, and I think it's important to note, at the approval of Brazilian civil aviation authorities. In other words, Brazil controlled the content of the NTSB's public statement. Um, that statement has a lot of details in it. It, 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 is, it does not, however, have any reference or any discussion of any merit in it relative to what was going on in Brazilian ATC. It uh, does not have any discussion about any intra-facility uh, communications, any communications between the two ATC facilities involved, uh, any references to, uh, well, let me put it another way, minimal references to what was on the Brazilian radar screens. Um, it's, it's clear that that's a missing link in the, in the totality of the information available. Um, in this in this investigation, um, it's also clear that um, there's something there had there was something going on in Brazilian ATC. There was a shift change at some point um, during the uh, flight of the Legacy. Uh, there clearly was a breakdown in just the manual tracking of these two flights. Um, there should have been some check, some balance um, in Brazilian ATC that would have sent an alarm, would be it a manual or automated alarm, to uh, controllers in those facilities saying, hey guys, you got two airplanes at the same altitude on the same airway headed in opposite directions. Uh, they're closing at around 900 knots. Someone needs to do something. Yeah. That apparently did not occur. And um, I, you know, I hesitate to, to to point fingers, but it it, it there clearly was a, a an accident chain here. There was there were several links in this chain that involved uh, miscommunication, a lack of communication, or assumptions on various people's parts. But what we're not seeing 
is exactly what happened in, in air traffic control. The, the basically the uh, that side of the uh, the microphone, that side of the equation. Right. On Sensen, there have been a number of stories out of Brazil about other issues uh, with their air traffic control system, uh, problems, coverage blanks, understaffing on the screens, conflicts between the uh, military, which operates the ATC system, and civilian controllers that are uh, charged with handling civilian traffic. Uh, there's some feeling among the uh, groups that have called for the charges to be dropped uh, that uh, there's a little CYA going on here on the military's yeah. part yeah. Uh, and of course it, it bears pointing out here that this is the worst air crash disaster in the nation's history yeah. uh, it was a huge shock to the population of Brazil and there's a tremendous amount of pressure for somebody to do something, even if it's wrong, and right. charging Joe Lapore and Jan Palladino uh, with a criminal act for simply following ATC instructions and, and serving uh, in their role as they're required to uh, is is beyond all bounds. Uh, what do you think is Brazil the likelihood? needs to rethink this. What do you think is the likelihood that I mean, like so many others? Um, I, we all went through this kind of moment of jubilation one day last week when we heard that they were going to be released. And then, I guess within the same day, we heard that they were charged before being released, which was really, you know, dis disturbing. But then it occurred to me, and what do you think are the chances that, in fact, that was just a sort of political spin management thing? It's um, exactly right. That exactly they charged right. them in order to save face with the the Brazilian population. This whole thing is very politicized And And maybe the intent here is that they're going to, in fact, drop these charges before it ever goes to trial. Well, I think they... Uh, I don't know how the Brazilian court system works in, in such instances, but there's a little in the U.S. system of justice, there's a little thing called discovery, and um, um, it would come out eventually um, in in public and in court uh, everything that happened in Brazilian ATC. If if for example we were in the U.S. or put it another way, it would come out what happened in U.S. ATC if we were in the U.S. Um, Brazilians have indeed made this a, a political thing, a political issue, um, and you look at it from their standpoint, it's their ATC, it's, it's their airline, it's in fact, uh, the other aircraft involved is, is in fact a Brazilian product, and they, are, they should be very proud that they have a worldwide uh, uh, aerospace manufacturer there in the, in the form of Embraer, manufactures uh, uh, very popular aircraft, uh, popular in, in various markets around the world. They have everything including to be proud of. Including here in the U.S. Including here in the U.S. They have everything to be proud of. Uh, they want to be proud of their air traffic control system also. Um, and I, I don't fault them for being heartbroken, for being um, distressed and distraught that this is happening to them and is happening on a world stage. Um, Unfortunately, uh, they are, are trying to make criminals out of these two pilots who, by all accounts, were simply following the rules and following the clearances that they had received. What was going on behind the scenes has yet to be fully aired, um, but um, I think the, the punchline here is criminalizing uh, something like this, especially accusing the, the pilots of criminal behavior doesn't resolve the problem. The problem is that two aircraft collided 
in an in route environment in which they should never have collided. Mm -hmm. And we as an industry, we as a as a community must put aside the political differences that we might have and get to the bottom of why this happened so it will not happen again. That's the objective here not pointing fingers and not trying to cover somebody's butt. Yeah. So now that the pilots are back home, what do you think, what's the next thing that's going to play out in this? Or is it going to get quiet now as the, as the investigation continues in a more or less normal fashion? Well, your guess is be, as good as mine. But. It, it, it should be pretty much a, a standard process for the Brazilian uh, safety investigators at this point to continue to work on the investigation, accumulate the data and the evidence that's available, and and put together the uh, the uh, probable cause finding. You know, the, their system works very closely the same, very closely to the same as ours does, uh, and they've got some of the best safety investigating uh, talent in the world working with them in the in the party of the National Transportation Safety Board people. Uh, NTSB facilities will be available to them if they need it, and we have facilities that don't exist elsewhere in the world. Uh, hopefully things will quiet down a little bit and calmer heads will prevail so that the investigation can proceed in a more normal basis, free of all the heat and light of the political situation, so that when the uh, probable cause finding does emerge, uh, there'll be some cover for the Brazilian government to look back at this and say, charging these pilots was a mistake. Now, this is wishful thinking on my part. Charging these pilots was a mistake. There's no basis for criminal act here. Uh, we need to drop the charges and uh, publish the findings so and, and then fix our system so that this never repeats. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to keep an eye on this story as time goes on, and, uh, and uh, it's pretty fascinating on lots of different levels, and uh, um, it would be... It would be nicer if it wasn't so troubling, but it, it certainly is a fascinating story, and I think there's a lot to be learned here. Yeah, absolutely. Is, definitely. All right, what, what else? What's next here? Uh, anything jump out, jump out at you, the other stories of the day? That one was such a big story in the past week. That, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, let me ask a question, and this is sort of uh, really moving to a whole different area here. There's been a story over the last week or so about um, uh, Boeing has been crowing about the fact that they reached a milestone on the deliveries of the so-called green BBJ. Oh, the 100th BBJ, absolutely. Right. Well, here's my question, and, and I, I would love to hear more about the BBJ in general because it sounds like a cool airplane. I want one. But yeah. um, they, they they, they'd love to sell you one. Yeah. They keep referring. Okay. And that's the one that we're going to have the uncontrolled airspace emblem on the, on the tail, right? And, right, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. And it'll be, and, and it'll be, it'll be UA, UCAP BBJ 1, 2, and 3, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why do they call it a green BBJ? Here's my question. It always, to me, using the word green in these kinds of contexts usually means that it's environmentally friendly. It's a product that no. is... No, 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 okay. no, Actually, can... that means... It means I, it's not ripe yet. Yeah, and I really thought for some time that there was something about the way they were manufacturing this airplane that was somehow, you know, better for the I mean, they maybe weren't using chemo. I don't know what, you know. Uh, and then for, I kept reading the story, and I'm going, you know, Jack, that's not what they're talking about. What in the world are they talking about? I think I know. Please, please educate me, though. About the a lot of air, a lot of business aircraft. Used, uh, go ahead. Jack. I was just going to say a lot of business aircraft are delivered, completed interior paints and so forth from the manufacturers. Uh, Cessna doesn't deliver green citations, for example. Uh, Nada does Learjet. Uh, 
that said, some of the larger, more exotic business aircraft, uh, the, the Dassault Falcons, uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, uh, Hawker line, and the uh, BBJ and Airbus ACJ, Air, Airbus corporate jet, are delivered green, quote unquote, because that's the customer then picks a completion shop to put in the interior and finish the paint job that they desire. The reference green comes from the zinc chromate primer uh -huh. that is That's the finish on the okay. airplane. Uh -huh. All right. So it, it looks there's, green. There's a um, press release that Boeing put out on, on delivery, on the, on the occasion of the delivery of the 100th uh, BBJ. And in fact, they have a photo uh, of the specific aircraft lifting off from their factory runway. And the photo clearly shows um, that the exterior of the plane is that zinc chromate primer green. Yeah. Um, another little tidbit, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Boeing, uh, as I once wrote, uh, typically does not sell and tell. Um, they don't release information associated with to whom they sell their BBJs, unlike uh the information regarding to whom they sell uh, their airliner aircraft. In this instance, they did make public uh, to whom that 100th BBJ went, and it's the Indian uh, government uh, to be used for uh, transport of, of uh, uh, Indian executives. Um, just a, just a little interesting, tid yeah, just a little interesting tidbit. Yeah, the state of India as opposed to the uh, right. Uh, uh, so in a lot of places Native around Americans. the world, this is the equivalent of what we call Air Force One. Exactly That's right. Correct. Yeah. That's correct. Exactly right. And, and what, uh, to, me, to me, the remarkable part of this story uh, is that a decade ago, when Boeing was returning to the business aircraft market in partnership with GE, GE and Boeing are equal partners in the BBJ program. Right. Uh, in uh, the mid-1990s, when the BBJ program was being launched as a separate office uh, and a separate product line, uh, Boeing had had an abysmal record uh, in prior years of selling quote-unquote whitetail airliners to corporate operators for use as business aircraft. Uh, really wasn't their product line. They didn't speak the language. They didn't know how to attend to the needs of the operators. Uh, because of the uh, uh, success of the uh, uh, Bombardier Global Express and the Gulf Stream 5, uh, two very long-range purpose-built business aircraft, Boeing and GE decided that uh, the 737-700 uh, could be a, compete, a competitive candidate uh, because, A, they could price it uh, very similarly to a Global Express or a G5, green and finished. Uh, they could offer a, a floor space plan that neither of those two purpose-built business jets uh, could, could come close to. Uh, and it had given them a little extra, you know, market squeeze uh, for their production line. Uh, forecast of how many of these things would sell over the long term were were pretty small. I mean, uh, there were there were uh, analysts saying that you know if they sell 50 or 75 of these things over the next 20 years, uh, it'll justify the existence of the program office, but it's not going to be a big footprint for them. Uh, now jump ahead from '96 to 2006. Not only did Boeing mention that it had delivered the hundredth BBJ uh, to the completion center of the uh, government, Indian government's choice. 
but that they have over 120 total corporate versions of their jets on order, including the ones delivered. Uh, that includes uh, another, uh, well, it's in the teens, so 737s, and also some 777s, uh, some upcoming 787 Dreamliners, mm -hmm. and ostensibly even a 747 uh, that will be sold and equipped as, uh, as corporate aircraft. Yeah. Uh, the other remarkable thing is that this product line has proven, the BBJ in particular, has proven to have such legs that it's no longer uh, a single product office. The BBJ was uh, uh, joined a few years ago by the BBJ-2, which is based on the 737-800, and now the BBJ-3, which is based on the Dash 900. Uh, these are airplanes with uh, 11, 1,200 square feet of cabin space uh, and legs to travel uh, in excess of 6,000 miles nonstop. Uh, and basically carry everything that you'd carry in a really nice studio apartment in Manhattan along with you. <laughs> Sounds great. You think, they'll let, you think they're going to let us park our three BBJs like next to each other in the North 40 or are we going to have to like... You know, if we can come up with $150 million that it'll cost to finish out three BBJs and the credit card to feed them, they'll let us park anywhere we want to. That's right. <laughs> might, we, we might have to bring our own two-by-fours, but I think we'll make it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll arrive as a flight of three, huh? There yeah. we go. Well, listen, I wanted, uh, let's move on here. Uh, I wanted to kind of call attention to one I can, nice... I could just see this at Oshkosh. BBJ, rock your wings. <laughs> <laughs> Boeing on file, rock your wings, yeah. We gotta, uh, go, we gotta... go for the short spot, please. <laughs> one particularly nice piece of... Okay, boys, are we done yet? There we go. <laughs> Sorry, we're a little punchy here on Sunday mornings. One particularly nice piece of email we got this past week uh, from, uh, from and, I, and I, I, I resist giving people's last names on uh, on the uh, on the podcast. Usually, I say their name from from their state, but I don't know what state this guy's from. But it's from Bill. Um, Bill sent us a nice, uh, nice email. Uh, in part, he wrote uh, a great show. He said, "I heard about you from the Airspeed podcast. Uh, our good friend Steve over at the Airspeed podcast." Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, he writes. Uh, Bill writes. Uh, I'm a typical PPL SEL who logs about 35 hours a year in a rented 172 or, or multiple rented 172s and warriors. He says, "I manage to finagle rides in homebuilts, a sailplane, a pits." and an extra 200 from time to time. Good for Ooh, wow. He says, I always considered owning, but really don't know how to go about it. Most of my flying friends are renters and home builders. He says, I've got a set of Falco plans, but haven't gotten time yet, dot, dot, dot. Then he says, uh, uh, and the flight school isn't the place to get the straight dope on ownership. Sounds like you guys have owned a few. Let us in on what you've learned and what we can do to encourage flying clubs and partnerships. And that's from Bill someplace in America. But th thank you for oh. your email, Bill. And, uh, yeah. He's Bill, uh, Bill, Bill. It's, <laughs> it's, it, it's, so, it's so easy. It's deceptive. Yeah. It, it really uh, is. Um, um, ownership think, is easy is what you're saying. That's yeah, right. Uh, well, ownership is easy uh, financially. Um, think of it as, as buying a, a, a mid- to high-end luxury car as far as the debt service is concerned. Um, except easier. Uh, except, yeah, perhaps easier. And, and not only that, but the aircraft will retain its resale value much more so than will a Lexus or a Mercedes. Uh, I guess that's point one. 
point two though is um, you have to be a little bit more proactive in uh, managing the aircraft ownership and operation than you would with an automobile. Um, there's, and if you look in the, the Federal Aviation Regulations, you will see that the, the owner-operator uh, is indeed the, the responsible party to ensure that maintenance is, is uh, conducted, that all the paperwork is, is uh, correct. That's really the, the, the greatest burden in my mind on, a, on an owner of an airplane. It's certainly the most demanding because yeah. it really requires you to uh, become an expert in your airplane. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not like uh, looking up consumer reports, what's the best hatchback to buy, and then just bringing it around to the dealer for the required maintenance. Uh, you're going to get paperwork in the mail that you're not going to understand. You need to take it to your A&P. Uh, you're going to get pitches to buy things that you may not understand. You need to talk to a more experienced pilot. But, Bill, a couple of things to back up what Jeb said. First off, I look at owning a small aircraft, and I'm, I'm in a position to start looking around again. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to lay down and hope it goes away. I can't wait until <laughs> the time comes. But um, uh, in a way, it's a little bit more like buying a, a, a small home than buying a, than a car. Uh, the long-term debt commitment that uh, you can get for buying a used aircraft can go as far as 20 years. Sure. 10 to 15 is really common, and that makes the monthly outlay much easier to swallow. Uh, second, uh, you're going to find yourself uh, flying more often if you're typical of most owners I know, because that airplane is going to be ready for you, presuming maintenance is up to speed, whenever you decide you want to go. Right. No more calling the flight school or the FBO to schedule an aircraft and finding out that it's booked out that day or that weekend. That puppy is going to be ready when you are. You're going to be able to lock and load on a minute's notice. And believe me, the world gets a lot more inviting when uh, when you know that all you got to do is trundle out to the ramp, throw your stuff into the back, lock and load, kick the tires, and go away. Yeah. Uh, that, that 35 hours a year that Bill flies will will automatically and immediately double. That's uh, right. And, and uh, it's not... Uh, inconceivable that it could quadruple uh, very easily uh -huh. uh, simply because of the ease of access, um, the, the non-existent scheduling conflicts, and um, obviously the, the, the simple fact that, hey, you know, I own an airplane. I can go anywhere I want. Let's go get a hamburger somewhere. Is it, uh, Bill, it's, it's just everything is just simpler. Is it the Bill, case that you. is it the case that uh, that flying um, the same airplane all the time will improve the quality of your flying and thus the safety of your flying. There's there's it, two answers to that, and there's and there's there's a yes and a no. Um, I think complacency is is the the negative side. One gets um, literally complacent, uh, overly familiar perhaps would be a better term, with the airplane um, uh, after a while, and and uh, perhaps um, cuts corners on. Uh, Either it's operating it or, or maintaining it. Yeah, it's it's the negative side, and I'm not right. suggesting that anybody or everybody uh, would encounter that. The the positive side is you're intimately familiar with the airframe, with the engine, with the avionics. Um, so much becomes into, so much more second nature to you yeah, when you're get, in, getting in the operating a, environment. Getting into a rental airplane on a Saturday morning to go get a hamburger 
um, you, you're not really sure. You know, you can look at the tax sheets and you can look at the squawk sheets and, and uh, well, you know, is the number two NAVCOM still acting up or anything like that? You won't know that until you get airborne and, and actually are using that number two in NAVCOM in that rental airplane. In your own airplane, you know intuitively, uh, uh, well, the, you know, the transponders mode C is acting up a little bit, and if I, if I whack it just right with this rubber mallet, <laughs> it'll come back online. Um, so, so there's, there's, it's an, there's, it's, it's an approved mallet though. Yeah, it's, it's oh, an FAA approved, it's yeah, it's an FAA approved mallet. Uh, PMA, STC. The paperwork's in the logs. There's no issues with okay. that mallet. Um, the punchline though is that, uh, um, the convenience, I think, I think, uh, when it comes to the, the pros, the cons, the negatives versus the positives of, of aircraft ownership, it's all positive as long as, the owner-operator slash pilot uh, stays conscientious and, and remains uh, committed to safety. And so to, to wrap up this subject, um, how so if one wanted to begin the process of shopping for a used airplane, what, what do you do? Where do you go to find airplanes for sale? I, would, I, wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even do that. The first thing I would do yeah. would be to figure out a budget, there you figure go. out a mission. And then pre-qualify... For yeah, the amount of money that you for the can afford, right, and start shopping from there. Yeah, and the, uh, the we, mission we, side, I think, is perhaps the most important, though. That's right. In that, um, what kind of an airplane do you want? Are you a, a Saturday afternoon, uh, hundred dollar, two hundred dollar hamburger type? Um, are you strictly recreational and sightseeing, or do you wish to use the airplane for traveling? Right, right there is 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 where you you kind of have to make a decision. Um, a, a two or four seat, you know, a Cessna 172 or a, a Piper Warrior would be great for the Saturday afternoon hamburger chaser. Um, maintenance it's not is, bad is for easy. the cross country mission as long it, as you. It, it, it depends as long on as you're the, patient. As long as you're patient, it depends on on you know if you're doing a two or three hundred mile cross country, that would be a good aircraft. Uh, I have found, uh, in my experience, that if you're going much further than that in that kind of airplane, um, you, you have to be very patient, and uh, there are a lot more situations, weather-related situations, where you're not going to go. Right. Um, once you start moving up the ladder to, say, a 200-horsepower airplane with, uh, say, 120, 130-knot uh, cruising speeds, uh, then your your envelope, uh, uh, your your radius of action, as it will, uh, expands. You also have to worry about, you know, what in, in part of this mission equation, what you're typically going to be carrying. How many people? How many bags? What's your what's your payload going to be? Um, do you want to uh, over the nominal routes you're going to be flying? Do you want to have to stop for fuel? Um, these are these are all uh, factors that you have to consider in, well, Bill, in defining when, your mission. In in the in the decade that my wife and I owned operated our own aircraft, and that was two different Pipers, uh, we kind of saw, not invented, but saw uh, a rule of thumb that held pretty consistently, and that is you take the uh, the, the monthly note, the cost of the airplane, and multiply that by about two to two and a half. Uh, and that's going to represent your total outlay in a year, f including hangering, maintenance, insurance, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then your 
operating costs are going to go up and down according to how much you fly. But to give you a couple of examples, I was noodling over this while uh, while Jeb was talking. Uh, if you can find yourself a nice Warrior Cherokee older 172 for $35,000, dollars uh, on a 15-year note, you could be paying as little as 400 or some odd dollars a month. Uh, round that up to about 800 a month to cover your annual inspection and maintenance costs, uh, insurance and hangerage. Uh, that's going to be a fairly realistic starting point on what it's going to cost you overall. Uh, if that fits with your plans and your needs, if you can see yourself using the aircraft on a mission uh, regularly enough to, that your flying hours are going to go up like Jeb and I would expect to double, maybe even more than double, uh, you could well be a candidate for ownership. Last pitch on my part, part of the option available to an owner is to make the aircraft available for rent through a leaseback program. Just a point uh, I was going to make. Go ahead. This is not for everybody, uh, and it's not necessarily in your best interest. It's worth exploring if your finances are on the fence here, because a leaseback uh, through a, a, a good, reputable, smart operation can help lower your cost of ownership. Uh, I've come short of uh, believing the claims that it'll actually put money in your pocket long term because it imposes some other maintenance demand of its own. But it can help bring down the cost of ownership and make justifying that airplane in the hangar a lot easier on your part and still give you the ultimate flexibility of scheduling the airplane to go when you want it to. Uh -huh. So uh, I would, don't, I would, be, go don't ahead. be shy about it. Don't be shy about exploring this. If all the answers point in the wrong direction, all you're out is a little time and a little research. But if they point in the right direction, I think you'll find the world of private aviation opens up to you in a whole new way when that's your own airplane rolling out of the hangar. Um, I would perhaps slightly disagree with the leaseback uh, thought um, and perhaps put some more meat on that bone. I would never put on leaseback, uh, in other words, put on the rental line at the local FBO, an airplane I cared about. Um, <laughs> to those uh, uh, to those who who rent airplanes, um, you know um, how those airplanes are sometimes treated. In fact, you perhaps do mistreat them yourselves. Think about whether or not you would want your pride and joy treated by a renter pilot in that same fashion. And I think you'll quickly come to the conclusion, as I say, that if you care about the airplane, you won't want it on the on a leaseback or on the on the local rental uh, line. <laughs> Well, and an owner can always kind of dictate terms of rental. Too. Exactly, they can, exactly right. They can make sure that it's not rented out for primary flight exactly instruction, right. for example. But, but maybe limited to instrument students or mm -hmm. instrument-rated pilots where the chance of it being handled by a more competent air aviator are better. Yeah. Uh, but there there are demands put on an airplane that's in rental that uh, that you wouldn't necessarily put on it yourself. And and I don't disagree with Jeb on that part. Yeah. That's why we always rejected entreaties to put our personal airplanes in leaseback. Uh, and one of them was in very high demand, the Comanche we used to own. Uh, we probably could have rented it 150 hours a year if I wasn't using it 175 hours a year right. myself. Right. Two additional points. One, I've um, been approached on numerous occasions by friends and acquaintances to sell or rent to them um, part of the airplane. Uh, and I have declined uh, in each occasion. First of all, I don't need the money. 
Secondly, um, I don't need the hassle um, of of the, the scheduling conflicts that might arise and and that that admittedly romantic concept of hey, I own an airplane, I can go anywhere I want, anytime I want, and I don't have to check with anybody. And call me selfish and and call me perhaps elitist, uh, but that's kind of the way I look at it. I think the the to bring this discussion full circle though and to answer Bill's original question is where to look for uh, an airplane um, the, the, the quick answer is uh, in your backyard uh, look at go to your FBOs go to your local airports look at the bulletin boards ask around talk to other pilots about what airplanes they know uh, in the local area that are for sale um, I, I can certainly pull out trade a plane and, and controller and and all of the other um, uh, traditional print and uh, online sources for aircraft uh, sales, but um, it's cheaper, easier, quicker, and perhaps even more informative to look uh, close to home uh, for for the aircraft you think you need. After, of course, you define your mission. And close to home can, in, in my mind, include whatever you could fly to in an hour, taking right. your mechanic along with you. Right. Yeah. Well, that's great. I've never actually owned my own airplane. Uh, I hope to one day, and that sounds like some really great advice. I appreciate that. That's, that's I miss great. it so much. Yeah, yeah. We <laughs> I got flew about, mine yesterday. So. we got about five minutes left here, and, uh, you know, I, mean, we, I don't know about you guys. I've been sort of experimenting in my head with a little catchphrase, something to, to a way to name this closing segment of the podcast. How about this? We're turning final. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Check gear down. Any uh, uh, any uh, uh, last thoughts here, I Jeb? I think you had something you wanted to. I uh, did have a shout here. out. Um, uh, one of the uh, uh, forums uh, in which aviation-related forums in which I participate is the uh, DC Pilots List on Yahoo.com, and uh, uh, it's it kind of ebbs and flows as far as traffic uh, is concerned but uh, there's some really good people on there and I especially want to give a shout out to Steve Nichols on the DC Pilots list uh, uh, he's a podcast listener and uh, just want to say I, I always appreciate the input and the, uh, the camaraderie on that list and uh, certainly also appreciate the recognition of uh, uncontrolledairspace.com and the, and the podcast so uh, just a shout out to Steve and the guys there and uh, uh, thanks for listening Great, Dave. Anything? Uh, any, well, any? in 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 light of the approaching holiday season, uh, I got a little thing that I want to mention. It, I got a box from an outfit called Hobbytron.com a few days ago, and inside was what's billed as the world's smallest remote control helicopter. I know. I want one of these. I've seen these. Go ahead. It's called the Pico Z. Papa India Charlie Charlie Oscar Zulu Pico Z. It is so small it sits in the palm of my hand. Uses an infrared remote control. Uh, it is strictly an indoor toy. Uh, the the rotor loading on this thing wouldn't tolerate even you know even a, a non windy a non wind day in Kansas. But uh, I've been playing with it the last couple of days. Uh, you know, if you got somebody on your Christmas list that's, uh, say, on the high side of 8 or 10 years old, uh, like 28, 38, 48, 58, um, they might find this little thing uh, really entertaining uh, for something to do on the coming cold winter days when going out to the airport is really not in the cards. Uh, 
the uh, the dollar costs on it are, are reasonable. Uh, I just find it. I'm not a helicopter pilot, but I found it an actual ball to play with. Uh, the Pico Z at Hobbytron.com. Uh, I thought about getting some more of these for my grandkids, but instead, I think I'm just going to keep them for myself. Very cool. I'll have to check that out myself. Cool. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Sounds yeah. like fun. Might, might be just the thing for my son's dorm room. There you go. Oh yeah, it'd be a great college dorm thing. That'd be uh, cool. Last thing, we, all of us who fly, have uh, have walked around our aircraft and done a pre-flight inspection, and and for most of us, that included at some time or another, wiggling a little switch on the wing that activated the stall warning horn inside. Well, earlier this week, the guy that gave us that little switch and in doing so probably saved countless lives, uh, passed on, went west. Leonard Green, he was 88 years old. He was the founder of the company Safe Flight Instrument Corp. Uh, his first stall warning system was basically a bicycle horn made with those, uh, made to work with some obscure parts. Uh, it involved into far more sophisticated systems. Uh, he went on to invent things to detect wind shear, to detect power lines for airplanes and helicopters. Uh, probably his greatest achievement uh, outside direct aviation safety was helping start the Corporate Angel Network that provides free transportation for cancer patients on, uh, on corporate aircraft that are volunteered by their operators. Uh, next time you're doing a walk around, wiggle that little switch on the wing. Uh, yo, a minute of thought to Leonard Green because it's his baby that's there and helping keep you safe. That's Amen. great. Amen. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you, Dave. Dave Higdon. Uh, for you can find out more about Dave at, at his website, DaveHigdon.com, and uh, Jeb Burnside uh, at uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com, and also AvWeb.com. And I'm Jack Hodgson from uh, jackhodgson.com. You can visit us all uh, at uh, the Uncontrolled Airspace website at uncontrolledairspace.com. Thank you, everyone, and uh, we'll talk to you again next time. Destination deplane slowly do this, do that, I comply. God bless Orville, God bless Wilbur, it's the only way to fly. Boeing, Boeing, 707, going, going, skywardly, heavenly, higher than bluebirds fly, why don't know I can't Boeing. You can email your suggestions and feedback about this podcast to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. The Uncontrolled Airspace podcast is a production of uncontrolledairspace.com and Jack Hodgson of Three River Productions. Your business organization could easily be taking advantage of the power and prestige of podcasting. For help with any and all aspects of using this new medium to present your products and messages, visit our website at threeriverproductions.com.